Hi, I'm Fiona. And I'm Cam. And you're listening to the Over the Fence podcast by Farmers for Climate Action. Today we're talking to Professor Richard Eckhart. Professor Eckhart is a world authority on sustainable agricultural production with a focus on carbon neutral agriculture and agricultural adaptation. I first interviewed Richard about his research into methane abatement strategies almost 15 years ago. We asked Richard about the opportunities out there for farmers today as they look to reduce their emissions on farm, as well as what's just around the corner. As always, don't forget to rate and review this podcast wherever you listen to it. You can get in touch with us via email or over social media. Our email is info at farmersforclimateaction.org.au. Here's our interview with Richard. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today, Rich. So I thought we'd ask you a little bit about your childhood and growing up. Did you have links to agriculture when you were a kid? Hi, Fiona. Yeah, look, I, I, I grew up in Swaziland um, in Africa, small little country, um, not South Africa, um, as most people might think. And um, my father was in research. We, we were, we, he was in um, the World Health Organization looking at malaria in Africa. So... If you can imagine any tropical disease, I've had it, going on mosquito collections with my father. But but I was brought up in the bush, basically. Um, not farming as such, but um, most of my childhood was tromping around the bush catching snakes. That sounds delightful. So what, what was your pathway to where you are now, Rich? How did you end up in Australia and how did you become, you know, a leading expert in sustainable agriculture? Yeah, so I always had a passion for research, for understanding how things work, for understanding how um, how systems fit together. And um, I think my father incentivised that because, you know, of his passion for research. Um, and um, most of my research ended up being looking at rangeland systems in Africa, uh, livestock systems, how they how they all work. And, and I've got history on both sides of the family of academics who've been... Uh, into rangeland burning, for example, as one professor, a cousin of mine, and Alan Savory is the other side of my family um, in cell grazing. Um, I'm not endorsing either, but, you know, it's just a bit of history. Um, anyway, but uh, an opportunity came up to, um, after I'd completed my PhD, to look at temperate systems. So I'd had most of my experience in summer rainfall tropical systems. So I understood those. But I don't think you really understand how temperate system, winter rainfall systems work until you live in them and understand that for three months of the year there is no evaporation. Um, and so I got a contract to work for the University of Tasmania. Um, and after that, Melbourne University offered me a research fellowship and that was it. Um, but there, there came a time where um, you started to look at agriculture and thinking, you know, climate change is starting to have an impact. And, and my passion is to make sure that our farmers are still busy on the land in 100 years' time, in 200 years' time, in 500 years' time. How do we do that? Well, the, you know, there's two sides to it. Climate change is impacting agriculture. So we've got to understand what we've got to do. But agriculture has an impact on the climate, so we've got to do something about that. Um, so, you know, it, it's not about restricting what farms can do. It's all about making sure that we're here on the land, still farming viably in a future carbon-constrained, climate-constrained world. So what part of your role do you enjoy most, Rich? <laughs> the part I enjoy most is the, the last week where I got to speak at the Australian Veterinary Association conference to about 250 vets in Darwin. 
who were all keen to know what they could do about uh, being involved in their their clients' move towards lower carbon. And then jumping in a car and going out to a few remote cattle stations to realize what the challenges are on the ground when you're tromping around a, a farm, you know, seven hours south of Darwin in the outback where they don't even know where the cattle are until they built the helicopter up. Um, it, it's it, For an academic, it's really important to sort of get out on farms and hear what the challenges are before you come up with trite and simplistic solutions for farmers. So, Rich, I remember interviewing you in maybe 2009 or 2010 about the work you were doing then to measure methane emissions from cattle out in the paddock. Um, I think the research has come a long way since then. Are you able to take us through kind of how things have changed over the last few years? Yeah, so our, our methane research, the gold standard is you have a, a chamber that the, the cows or sheep go in and you close the doors and you ventilate it and measure methane. That's the gold standard, but it's not exactly a natural environment. So we worked hard on developing techniques like the tracer techniques where you can actually have animals at grazing in the field and measure individual methane or just shoot a laser beam over the top of them and measure the whole herd at a time. Um, I think that's really developed um, over time. Um, what what hasn't happened is the individual animal sensors and, you know, point-and-shoot technologies haven't really got to where we thought they would. But it's also demystified some of the estimation. A lot of farmers are saying, well, how can you measure what my cows do? But we took all our chamber studies in Australia and put it through one big meta-analysis and we figured out that most bovines in Australia are 20.7 times dry matter intake is their methane, and it's pretty predictable. And so you can see a dairy cow in Gippsland eating 22 kilos of dry matter of high, lush, digestible grass, producing 50 litres of milk. Well, they're producing a lot of methane on the top right of the equation. Come down the 20.7 line and down on the bottom left, you've got a Brahmin in North Queensland eating stones, um, three kilos of stones a day and not producing much methane and probably losing weight. Um, but it's all one straight line of dry matter intake, which adjusts for the quality of the feed they're eating and how much they're producing. So that's really demystified. It's not that difficult to uh, understand how much methane is being produced by various animals. But it also gave us a target in research that said that 20.7 so if we feed them seaweed, that comes down to 5.2. If we feed them oils, it goes to 16. If we feed them tannins, it goes to 12. And so a lot of the research is really how do we shift that 20.7 down to something different? When you think about ag emissions and ag's impact on climate, what's your thoughts on methane versus, say, other sources of climate emissions, you know, fossil fuels being dug up and burned? Yeah, so there's been a fair bit of debate around um, the short-lived versus long-lived gases. And, you know, if you put out a kilogram of CO2 today, it's still around in 400 years' time. So you're kind of locked into that. And if we go to net zero uh, long-lived gases, so long CO2, we kind of stuck with 450 parts million in the atmosphere for the next 400 years, which is kind of depressing. Um, we know that methane hangs around for a short amount of time, so it's only around for 12 years. But it does a fair bit, fair bit more damage in those 12 years. It's almost 100 times more damage in those 12 years before it's gone. So, it, But what it does mean is that um, methane, to achieve the same long-term outcome, the same 100-year outcome, 
methane as a target might not need to be zero um, because it's gone after 12 years. So actually, if you just had a 40% less methane by 2050, you achieve the same ambition from a short-lived gas as you do from going to net zero on the long-lived gases. So it's kind of changed our, our view of um, methane strategies. So, you know, we don't have a methane-free cow tomorrow. We might never have a methane-free animal. But at least it gives the livestock industries a, a, a more realistic target to aim for, to say, well, can we achieve 30% less methane um, by sometime in the mid-century? So, Rich, the red meat industry has a carbon neutral by 2030 goal. Um there's been a lot of research development, as you've said. How are we going getting this research out into paddocks and on farms? Yeah, so look, the, the, the research is quite active and I think it's telling us quite a few things. Um, uh, it's, it's telling us that there's more than one way to reduce methane and we probably need all of them um, because we can feed supplements to confinement animals and get 100% less methane from the feedlot industry. We, we know we can do that. But how does that help cattle in the Kimberley where you don't even know where they are? And so we need supplement technology at one end, but we need vaccines and early life programming, which is about just raising animals on low methane diet, low methane profiles and, and then just having them perpetually low methane. Maybe that's the solution for the Kimberley. What it's also taught us, though, is if you're trying to offset emissions using sequestration, you might only buy yourself five years. Um, and this is a reality check we need in agriculture is that um, there's a lot of emphasis on can we just plant trees? Well, we've, we've got a very well-known case study we did that planted 23% of the farm down to trees and effectively probably only bought five years of carbon neutrality before the trees grew up and stopped growing. So we've just got to have a reality check on if we're planting trees, we plant them for lamb survival, we plant them for biodiversity, we plant them for salinity, and there's a carbon benefit out the end. But if we do it just for carbon, we're really going to come unstuck because it's, it's, it's not going to give us much of an offset for long. So, Rich, I spoke at the Food Security Inquiry a couple of, years, a couple of weeks ago um, and they asked me what what the top five priorities that government should be focused on in agriculture in terms of emissions reduction. So what what should they be recommending to government to focus on? Um, I said that I would be speaking to you in a couple of weeks and that I would put this question to you. So um, I'll leave that one to you to now answer, Rich, if you're feeling comfortable. Yeah, look, if it's specific to emission reduction, um, I, I think really um, government is not really um, leading the way on targets. It's the supply chain we see leading the way on targets. So, you know, the JBSs, the Coles, the, uh, the Cargills have all, all got targets and, and we know we've got to aim for those targets. So the best thing government can do is put funding into research to deliver cost-effective options for farmers to respond. Now, what we've seen is some of the supplement work that's been going on might only help the feedlot industry and to some extent the dairy industry because most of the cattle in northern Australia, we don't know where they are, let alone feed them something. So I would say there's a lot of um, things government can do about investing in rangeland methane reduction strategies because that's the big ticket item. 
Switch to the next ticket item, and that is the extensive grains industry. So it, it's kind of unfortunate that grains is the next big emitter because on a per hectare basis, it's negligible. But the grains industry uses, because grains in Australia uses far less nitrogen than most of the wetter countries in the world. So our emissions per unit of grain is is almost half of what the rest of the world's is already. Um, but because there's so many hectares involved, it adds up to a big number nationally. So I, I think there are things that government can do pre-farm to address the emissions from the grains industry, and that's where government should be thinking. So first one would be the extensive grazing industries and methane. The second one would be a pre-farm approach to how we deal with extensive grains. What do I mean by that? Um, that that's where our three-point plan comes in, which, if you don't mind, I, I might actually step through. Take us through it. Great. So if you think of the profile of a grain, a crop, typical cropping farm, if you imagine a pie chart, you've got one third of that pie chart is the pre-farm emissions of manufacturing the nitrogen fertiliser. One third of it is crop residues and one third of it is fertiliser use on farm. So let's address each of those in turn. The one third from pre-farm emissions. If you go to the Australian Renewable Energy website and you look at um, their projects, they're funding 10 projects to deliver that nitrogen using renewable energy. So I would say if by 2030 none of those 10 have delivered, then it's not possible. But you would imagine that at least one of those 10 would deliver carbon neutral pre-farm emissions of fertiliser to the grains industry, number one. So that, that would dramatically reduce that one-third of emissions from pre-farm manufacture. The crop residues ones, we've already won the argument there where they were using an outdated uh, European IPCC 2006 multiplier. And the government's already said, yep, we'll, we'll halve that. But I think there's government investment needed in research to say, well, what do crop residues produce in terms of nitrous oxide emissions? Because we think it's much lower again. If you're in Western Australia and you're keeping residues in a grain system that's quite arid and not saturated, those crop residues make very little nitrous oxide. And so we could drop those figures again. And then it leaves the one third from fertilizer. And we think of, you know, we know technologies like nitrification inhibitors would halve that emission straight away. But because the average grain property is losing only 200 grams of nitrous oxide nitrogen per hectare per year, there's no farmer that's going to spend 15% more on a coated fertilizer to save 200 grams per hectare. It's just, it's never going to come in the budget. But so we call that a market failure. And what Fertiliser Australia and us have done is, is all 20 fertiliser companies have come together to say, well, what if we could get government to honestly buy the emission reduction before it arrives at the farm? In other words, if we coated all fertiliser in Australia with inhibitors, we'd drop 50% of all those farm emissions out. But all it requires is an honest purchase of government to say, we will buy the emission reduction because there's no productivity gain for farmers. And we think we'd get that down to a 4% only. In other words, instead of 15% more expensive per unit nitrogen, it would come down to about 4% per unit nitrogen. And I think that would be an honest purchase compared to some of the things that have gone on in the past where um, we've paid for emissions that weren't real in millions of dollars. This is actually a very transparent transaction, very accountable, and can buy the grains. So imagine... 
then if the Australian grains industry is putting itself out on the world market, now it's 25% of the emissions per unit of grain of what the European Union is. And suddenly we're at the head of the game when it comes to meeting global targets for preferential purchase of low emissions product. And so I, I think it's all about positioning the cropping industries of Australia on the world market to be able to supply some of the lowest embedded emissions products that we can. Do you have any idea of what that might cost? What, you know, if government were to do this, what sort of figures we might be looking at? We we did some numbers on it. And um, if, if it was down to only 4% price premium, we figured it would be a lot cheaper than the avoided deforestation purchases that government's already done, which didn't buy, buy us an emission reduction. <laughs> if you think about it, avoided deforestation doesn't actually reduce emissions. And it doesn't buy us towards our Paris target and doing this. And, and what we've also done is, is, is not made it an open book. In other words, we said, start today at 4%. That'll come down over time when everyone's doing it. And if you just bridge the price between now and the date when we have renewable energy producing urea at a cheaper price, that's where government can step out. And so you, you just, you've got to, you, you know, you, you don't put any policy to government that is open-ended. It's not open-ended. You just have a, a, a decreasing term between now and the time we have lower-cost fertiliser from renewable energy. And talking about avoided deforestation, there's a lot of discussion at the moment with Chubb Review and Safeguard about you know the benefits of carbon farming, both for Australia's, you know, but both for farmers and for us, you know, meeting our mission targets. What do you think about the opportunities that carbon farming poses for farmers? Yeah, look, this is, this is a really big issue. The, um, when you look at the upgrade of the safeguard mechanism, there's going to be a decreasing baseline um, that's proposed that's somewhere around, I think, 6% declining baseline year on year for, for most entities. That'll create a massive demand for carbon offsets. But I was part of the Net Zero Australia plan where the University of Queensland and the University of Melbourne worked on the pathways for each sector to carbon neutral. And I was part of the land sector of reconciliation. And what that told us very clearly is if agriculture had to achieve its own supply chain targets, its own emission reduction targets of roughly 30% by 2030 and net zero by 2050, there are no surplus carbon credits in the land sector. In other words, agriculture, if they inset all their own carbon credits, if farmers kept their own sequestration, soil carbon, tree carbon for themselves to access their own supply chain, they would still struggle. So the notion that there is all the surplus carbon credits to be had by declining baseline in the safeguard mechanism, creating demand, the supply and demand equation doesn't add up. I, I just don't think the carbon credits are there quite like we thought they were. Rich, we've been going on a journey as we count through our top five priorities that government should be focusing on. So we've talked about um, the first point was investment in rangeland reduction technologies, um, you know, addressing we've, your three-point plan in the extensive grains industry, or is there a particular element of that that you would put kind of as the priority area? And is that the um, inhibitors uh, investment? Yeah, so, so what, I'd, what I'd, if you had to summarise that, that would be government um, buying using, instead of research money specifically, uh, research is still important, but where they could make the biggest impact is just buying that emission reduction from coating all the fertiliser in Australia. 
So the industry is ready to do it. It can be done on shore. Uh, every fertilizer company is happy to do it. They're just wanting to know who's going to pay the price premium. And if it's just an emission reduction, that's probably a very tactical spin by government as the second highest priority that I would I would say in positioning agriculture. The 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 third highest priority would be um, you know f- funding national programs again. Um, we had national programs on soil carbon, on methane, on nitrous oxide, um, and we stopped those. And we now wonder why the um, the uh, source of new offset technologies is running dry. Um, because research is not coming through at the same scale as it was in providing new opportunities for farmers to actually meet these supply chain demands. So what I mean by that is, you know, are there are there equivalents of natural nitrification inhibitors? Are there things we can do to uh, bring more secondary compounds into forage diets? Are there things we can do um, to uh, address uh, more legumes into the rangelands or, you know, uh, there's a whole bunch of priorities that are still out there that are all about sustainable agriculture. Another one I would put on the, on the table is if you think that by 2030, agriculture will no longer be trading carbon credits because we'll be insetting them to be able to sell our, our products down the supply chain. So the notion of trading carbon credits will go for agriculture by 2030. No one's going to be selling carbon credits when you know you can't sell your product unless you keep them. So if we're looking at that exit out of carbon credit markets, what's next? The next big ESG coming at agriculture is maybe water use and biodiversity. So you think, well, should we should government be funding a mapping from where we are today with a focus on carbon through to mapping a 2030 future that is about biodiversity because carbon is an attribute of biodiversity. So you can have your carbon sitting inside biodiversity, but I would argue you're switching out of paying the wrong people to paying the right people as well. So paying the wrong people is if you're a 3% soil carbon, government is saying we'll pay you taxpayer money to go to 4% because that's your potential. We should be asking, why did you stuff up your soil that you're not 4%? Because there's every productivity incentive to be 4%. So we're paying the laggards to improve their soil carbon. Whereas biodiversity credits, we're saying, are you a 9 out of 10 on potential historically? In other words, you've done the right thing. You've got 9 out of 10 potential biodiversity with the carbon sitting in there. Let's reward that. So suddenly... The proactive farmers are actually getting the reward, not the reactive farmers. Which is interesting and sort of leads on once again to another bill that's coming up, which is the Nature Repair Markets Bill. Do you know Do you know much about that one? Any, do you have any thoughts about the approach that the government's taking? Not that one specifically. Um, so I, I, you might give me a bit more detail on that. I can comment about the biodiversity plan. Yeah, yeah. Did you want to talk a little bit about the biodiversity plan? And the Nature Repair Markets Bill is really looking to create a a market for nature um, and sort of pay, you know, pay farmers, pay other people to plant trees and, you know, to to reforest. But there's there's also concerns about what are the impacts on genuine biodiversity with that approach. Yeah, so that leads into, into my comment about the biodiversity pilot. Um, I think it's a step in the right direction, but I think it, it is also sending the wrong message because biodiversity is not about just planting trees. And, and we've got to make sure we move very quickly beyond this notion that it's just about trees and agricultural landscapes. 
because biodiversity is about soil microbial diversity. It's about plant diversity. One of the biggest strategies for adaptation to climate change is not monocultures anymore, moving to more diverse uh, forages, moving to more diverse cropping rotations, moving to, you know, biodiversity can be better crop rotations. It can be more diverse pastures. It might be spreading your risk across more than one enterprise. Um, so biodiversity is not just about more trees in the landscape. And we've got to avoid us going too far down that track before we talk about true biodiversity. Um, so that, that would be my main comment. The pilot's a good step in the right direction towards a biodiversity credit. But I can see that if we want genuine engagement as an ESG down the track, we've got to have a more diverse definition and a more diverse way of accounting for biodiversity on farms. Richard, sort of casting forward as well, what, what do you think the impact of a changing climate and less stable seasons and more variation will have on the economics of, say, the family farm versus other farms? And what do you think it'll do to the agricultural sector and to farming? Look, I think we have to be ready for change. There, there is going to be change. You know, agriculture in Victoria alone, under 1.5 degree rise in temperature, which is the Paris target, it won't look like it does today. Um, but it's not the end of the world. We've also got to be careful we're not sort of painting a doomsday picture. You, you could say there's winners and losers. For example, you know, we know there's a southward movement of rainfall bands. So if you're in um, Holbrook, for example, 40 years ago, it was a winter-dominant rainfall system you were managing. Now it's 50% in summer, 50% in winter. So that's, that's, a winner, uh, that's a potential win scenario because if you have summer active pastures, you can capture that extra rainfall. If you're down in Orbost, we're starting to see summer rain come around the corner um, down into southeast Victoria. That gives opportunity for those graziers there to make more out of Kaikuyu pastures, for example. Um, but there are other challenges where we know, for example, the wine industry is going to have to ship, shift to warmer season grapes and the cooler season grapes are going to have to move further south. Um, so there's a lot of challenges in that mix, but but the sort of overall mantra would have to be more diversification is the way to manage that variability. What I mean by that is we're going to have to see wool move back into traditional wheat on wheat on wheat systems because we know in the northwest you can't just plant wheat on wheat in in perpetuity because then the rate of crop failures has gone up rather than down. So you need to hedge your bets by having mixed farming systems. So I think what we will see is in the lower variability areas, you will see more intensification. That'll be in the sort of coastal belt. But if you go further inland, you've got to look at diversification as being the, the item. And that plays into switching that out of a volume approach to a quality attribute approach, of a value-added mentality. So how do we in inland agriculture have more diversification more um, sustainable systems that are more diverse and therefore are producing a quality product with uh, biodiversity attributes or water use efficiency attributes or low carbon status. Um, and I think that's the future. So, Rich, we've, we've gone through four priorities. Do you have a fifth priority for the government should be focused on in ag in terms of emissions reductions? Yeah, I'd, I'd throw out another one. I, I didn't think I'd come up with five, but I managed to. Um, I, uh, I sat on the Eurogas reference group. In other words, it's the European Union's investment in greenhouse gas emissions reduction technologies across agriculture. And I was on the um, evaluation committee that 
approve certain projects. And it was quite annoying to sit there and see nine EU countries all tipping money into a collective pool and then little New Zealand topped its money in the top. And when you added up the total amount of money New Zealand put in the top and how much they got in projects out the bottom, it was a entry-exit equation. In other words, they put in money in the top, they bought their seat at the table, and they pulled their money into the five projects back to New Zealand. But what they had done is bought, bought a table into the global research agenda. Now, we've not done that. And we are the only developed country in the world that's not done that. Um, and I just wonder if it's a major missed opportunity to say, government, why don't you, because we're not alone in this challenge. Every livestock developed country in the world is pouring millions of dollars into methane research. Every cropping environment is pouring millions of dollars into nitrous oxide research, soil carbon research around the world. Why are we not, why are we thinking we should do it ourselves? Because if you're developing an inhibitor for reducing methane, you only need one group around the world to work on that technology. You don't need every group to rubber stamp. And, and so we, we're in danger of what I call stamp collecting as a result. In other words, they did it in California, so we'll do it here. And we'll prove that we get the same results as California. I mean, that, to a certain extent, that's important. But we could be wasting a lot of money that we could be putting into more blue sky innovative approaches. So I would say my, 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 my high priority would be if government could take the budget they were going to allocate, put it in the top of some of these larger EU programs and buy us a seat at the EU table so we can work with nine other countries on a joint shared priority in a collaborative way. That would have to be a big way of moving forward. Thank you so much for sharing your five-point plan with us that you didn't even know you had at the, the start of our chat, Rich. Um, looking forward, um, when you think about where the research might go in the next 10 years, is there any kind of exciting technology kind of coming through that we might not have heard much about before? Yeah, I think there's, there's three things I think that, that we, we look at. One is early life programming for methane. And that is the idea that your and my gut microflora are a product of our home, home environment. And the ruminant is much the same. And so there's some really exciting research that's been done that shows that if you take one of these novel inhibitors and you feed it to cows and calves through their weaning phase, and then you stop three weeks later, that they stay about 20% less methane for the next 12 months. So that's really exciting that we could actually intervene once in a generation and just have cows that are lower methane as a result. I, I think that is that is really exciting. Whether we can pull it off, we don't know, but it has to be the ultimate outgame uh, because we don't want farmers spending money every day on an inhibitor. We don't want them doing things that are, are expensive just to reduce methane if we can do it more naturally. That, that's one. The other one that, that, that really does look need more looking at is there are a number of plants that exude natural nitrification inhibitors into the soil, just root exudates. And um, it's shown that a number of our pastures do have these root exudates. Is there something we can do to actually control the efficiency of the soil nitrogen cycle through natural plant exudates, restricting certain microbes from producing greenhouse gases and keeping the soil more efficient in the nitrogen cycle? I think that would have to be a, a pretty, pretty good technology. Um, and the, the last one is, you know, we've got a number of legume species across the country and they all have genes for secondary compounds that reduce methane. Um, 
could we could we enhance those through breeding? Um, if you're GM, you'd say yes. You could switch on genes. If you're not, could you use gene marker technology to accelerate the breeding of a lucerne that reduces methane by twenty percent? Um, those are the kind of things I'd be aiming for. More sort of natural systems that um, naturally control these emissions rather than we artificially intervening to do so. So, Rich, usually when I talk to you, we talk about beef or dairy or cropping. Do you do much work in horticulture and is there anything there that we could um, share with the, the farmers who are listening in who are in hort and might be thinking about what they need to do? Yeah, I'd separate hort into perennial versus annual. Uh, they're quite different. Um, you know, annual horticulture um, does have um, a soil carbon issue because you're disturbing the soil on a regular basis. So there's a lot of uh, more innovations that we can do to reduce that erosion of soil carbon or to sort of mulch and keep back soil carbon. Um, but annual horticulture, if you're talking um, brassicas, for example, they can use an inordinate amount of nitrogen. There, there's some lettuce growers that would use 400 kilograms of nitrogen because they're on sandy soils. We've got to do better than that. Um, so, so there's that. Perennial horticulture is inherently a very low-emitting industry. Um, so you look, look at citrus where a lot of the fertilizer is applied through drip irrigation. Highly efficient, very low nitrous oxide footprint, um, and um, probably more carbon stored in the trees, which brings me to the question. Um, we were talking to the almond industry about, well, can we count the carbon in the almond trees? until we found out that after 25 years, they just mulch it and put it back on the soil, which means there's zero carbon left. Um, that would be where I'd point them and say, you want to be carbon neutral? You can, because you've got carbon in the trees. You've got very low emissions from everything else. Could you be more innovative about what you do with that wood to lock it away in long-term storage? In other words, can you make guitar necks out of an almond tree or something, something really innovative that's not going to get back in the environment within 100 years? Um, and then you look at viticulture, where the majority of the emissions from viticulture are post the vineyard, because the amount of nitrogen used in the vineyard is negligible. Um, and really, if a vineyard, if a, if a winemaker went onto renewable energy and went for electric vehicles completely, there would only be about 5% of the emissions left from other sources, which, you know, a few trees could sort out. So, so actually, the perennial horticulture industry has great potential to, to go carbon neutral fairly quickly, fairly seamlessly, um, if they just were a bit innovative about what they did with the plant residues. Um, which brings me to others like um, pigs and poultry, where there's not much from the animals themselves. It's all about manure management. And so you think about a poultry operation going carbon neutral, it's about either you wet up the poultry and cap it and turn it into methane and sell it as a renewable energy, or you dry it down, reduce the methane emissions and sell it as pelletized fertilizer to displace fossil fuel fertilizers. So, you know, there, there's winners there to be had straight away. And, and you could go carbon neutral as a poultry operation pretty easily on that basis, just with a bit of uh, renewable energy in solar on your roof. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Rich. Um, this has been fascinating. So just before we end up, is there anything else that you think our listeners would want to know about or want to hear about that's exciting you at the moment? <laughs> um, look, I, I think it's important to say that there's, uh, the challenge is different for different industries, as, as we just spoke about. 
you know, and, and the industry with the greatest challenge is probably the extensive livestock industry or, or, you know, industries like dairy, for example, who have a very high nitrous oxide and methane footprint. Dairy is fortunate in that they can do something about it. I, I mean, our assessment is dairy could reduce their methane and nitrous oxide by 50% overnight if the incentive was there. The incentive is just not there just yet. Um, but if you look at the extensive livestock industries, there's still a major challenge. But this is why I, I, I switched into the biodiversity discussion, because you go to central Australia and you realise that actually the methane signal per hectare is less than the termites per hectare in terms of methane. One animal to 40 hectares is producing less methane than the termites. So, but in some of these farms we were analysing, their trees are growing um, actively. So they've got 20% mulga on the property. It's actively growing. Yes, you can't sell it as a carbon credit, but the supply chain actually looks quite favourably on those properties because they can honestly say they've got more carbon sequestration in naturally regrowing mulga than they have in emissions of methane per hectare. Um, and so I think there's, there's, there's some exciting things that are emerging that we might be able to explore in the next future that it's not all doom and gloom and there are pathways forward for every industry. Thanks so much for um, being so generous with your time today, Rich, and we look forward to continue to have conversations like this with you. Absolutely, and you probably realise why my sister-in-law scathingly calls me a mine of useless information. <laughs> <laughs> not at all. <laughs>